Harlots of History contains explicit language, overt sexual themes, and discussion of sensitive subjects. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harlots of History, a show by women for everyone, except children and pets, including our own. This show is created by our love of the shadier, inventive, and bold women, men, and non-binary humans that you cannot find in the history books. We will be exploring and educating ourselves, and hopefully our listeners, on infamous mistresses, lovers, sex workers, courtesans, madams, vamps, sirens, and of course, harlots. We will delve into their pasts, sordid or honorable, discussing the era that they happened to live in and the problems of the times. Be ready for some controversial figures. You may be surprised at how many harlots in history you end up loving or at least begrudgingly respect. So sit back, grab a fizzy drink, some salty snacks, and have some fun listening to Harlots of History, taking back the word harlot one episode at a time. Okay, hi, I'm Kara Mia. I'm a stay-at-home mama, and I am doing this podcast for fun with my bestie. And her bestie's Emily. <laughs> That's me. Uh, I am a stay-at-home dog mom. <laughs> And this episode is Karamia's birthday episode. Woohoo! Last year of my 20s. Yep. <laughs> the, best, the best year. So uh, what are we talking about today? Well, before we start this very long and arduous topic that I think is very important and also very interesting. This is also going to be part one of two. Uh, we are going to be opening our delicious bottles Yes, sparkling rosé. <laughs> yes. We both got a bottle. I tried to buy one for Karamia, but her husband uh, bought it for me. So, and we, um, we love to buy champagne, but we're cheap and we still like the good taste. So we bought Cremant. I mean, these are nice bottles. This is a, I'm drinking a Lucian Albrecht. All right. I'm going for it. Me too. Okay. Ooh, it sounded like a French woman's queef. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> <I> did it. <laughs> Cheers. Happy birthday. Cheers. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this. I have been looking forward to this too. I, I stayed up till three last night and she got up at three this morning. Before we get started, all right, I'm just going to, I'm drinking this out of a mason jar. <laughs> Cheers. I, I at least have a legit wine glass because my children aren't around to break it. <laughs> mm, mm. Oh, that tastes so good. I know. Oh, it's I also miss, Is it just bad? I miss wine from a bottle. As a former Psalm, I'm so embarrassed to say that I've been drinking boxed wine for this coronavirus pandemic. Oh, me too. I have gone through maybe 10 boxes of wine. Also, it's uh, 10 a.m. my time and 9 Karamia's time. And we are recording both of these episodes uh, right after each other. So this bottle of wine uh, will be a great pairing. Before we get into the episode, though, I have a little something. I have a birthday tribute that I wrote that I want to read to you. Aww. <laughs> All right. Karamia, you are the Anne to my Leslie, the Piper to my Phoebe, the Monica to my Rachel. Whether you lived a thousand feet down the hall or a thousand miles across five states, you have been and always will be my bosom friend. We have slayed dragons together, if ex-boyfriends are dragons, climbed <laughs> mountains, if mountains are the stairs from your apartment to mine, labeled, labeled with two glasses of wine, a bag of Funyuns, a squirming toddler, and four seasons of Castle, been, <laughs> been to Palace Balls, if Palace Balls are the Tuesday's ladies' night at Havana, adorned with a musk of sweaty dudes, too much Axe cologne, and $2 tequila. We have traveled across the land, across the land to South Carolina on an overnight flight with a seven-month-old, 
across the highway to Great Wolf Lodge to sit Bloody Marys while spending all of our serving tips at the arcade. (laughs) Across the street to dance in drum circles and shake our broodies at Pride. From being carefree 20-somethings who could down a bottle of two-buck chuck faster than you could say all-day happy hour, to drinking rosé on the patio while crafting for a one-year-old's birthday, to cure royales, fine champagne, late-night cocktails and dimly-lit Seattle bars, to shouting the lyrics to Renegades while speeding across the Puget Sound with wind whipping the rosé out of our Starbucks tumblers. (laughs) (laughs) To to toasting to your third child, to days on the river listening to Genuine while my third child chased sticks in a Finding Nemo life jacket. We have the fallen on the floor countless times from heartbreak, exhaustion, or simply too much dancing. Dusted each other off and got right the hell back up, only to take on life stronger, bolder, and with better wine and more practical shoes. Cheers to 29. You are a more vibrant, passionate, loving, nurturing, crazy, with a K, version of yourself than you were at 21. And you are and always will be a harlot. Oh, I'm going to cry. If for our listeners, Emily and I came from very, we came from different states and we met at a French restaurant in Seattle and we did not like each other at first. And we formed this crazy bond of a friendship while Emily watched me get pregnant at a very young age, have a baby. Emily was literally my daughter's second mother and she helped me get through a horrible breakup when my daughter was nine months old. And Emily helped pay for me to move into the apartment building so that we could be near each other. So there are definite points in my life where if Emily wasn't there, I wouldn't have made it. Oh, now I'm going to (laughs) cry. Well, and then you helped me get through a horrible breakup a year later and then helped me move into my grungy Capitol Hill apartment and out of it. And then to Colorado. Oh, but it's okay. We actually talk now way more than we did. did. Yeah. When we lived, well, maybe not when we lived in the same building, but. (laughs) Oh, that's so, yeah. And so I guess what we're telling everyone out there is if you want to become best friends with someone, just each go through a crazy breakup. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Crazy. Yeah. Like I'm talking the worst breakup you can possibly imagine and then heap some more on top of it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Well, cheers to that. Let's take a long before we start. <laughs> oh yeah, this is a yeah. I had an ice matcha latte and some eggs, and I'm ready for this. <laughs> okay, so let's delve in. Yeah. Before I start, I want to say that I am not an expert on these matters. I am not a historian. I have done some schooling on this, but obviously, I don't have a degree in history. But today, we are talking about sex workers of the Wild West. I'm so re- excited right? to learn about this. Yeah. So the reason why I am starting here is because. Because Emily and I are really passionate about sex workers in general. Um, We'll get more into this later. But I feel like when anyone thinks about sex working in the U.S., it immediately goes to like the really iconic, romanticized versions of these women who were, a lot of people call them prostitutes throughout my episodes. I'm going to be calling them sex workers unless there is the word prostitute in a quote. So we're starting there because we will be eventually be exploring a lot of other times and versions of sex workers in American history earlier and later. And Emily is going to be venturing into different countries. And we just really want this to be a foundation. And we want people to really know our stance on Mm -hmm. sex working in general. Yeah, I think it's really, I think it's really important too, because I was actually listening to an episode of My Favorite Murder last night where they were talking about the Grim Sleeper. 
have you listened to that episode? It's mm-hmm. really good. Yep. Yeah. But it was, there was a lot of the stuff that was coming up with how, you know, it wasn't, they weren't paying attention to what was happening because the women that were being murdered were black sex workers. Marginalized. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's really important to talk and that, you know, sex workers are humans and we need to treat them as humans. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. 100%. Okay. Soiled doves, painted ladies, sporting women, fallen angels, scarlet ladies, painted cats, frail sisters, jeweled birds, women of the evening, nymphs of the prairie, whores, and my personal favorite, bod good time daisy are some <laughs> of the few names used to describe sex workers and madams who are a fixture in the Western frontier or the Wild West. Which one's your I like, favorite? I like painted cats. Right? I knew you would. I knew you would. <laughs> I'm going to start calling myself a painted cat. <laughs> I, like many others, I imagine, are slightly obsessed with the legends of the parlor houses or brothels, madams, bowdy houses, and frontier sex workers of the Wild West or the Western frontier of the mid to late 19th century. I dream of Fanny Porter serving chilled champagne to Butch Cassidy and the Hole in the Wall gang. But the harsh reality was often that women were forced into this profession because of economic hardship or because she was seen as a tarnished woman because of a previous sexual relationship, including rape. Their life was surrounded by violence, disease, and near constant poverty. They were seen as replaceable, but filled a social and economic function. Pretty much they were, they were ground to the ground by capitalism, just yep. churned out. Yep, which we all know. And um, before I start, my main sources were... Uh, Women of the West, Prostitutes and Madams by E.R. Merrick, and the episode Prostitution in the Wild West by Salacious History, and of course, Wikipedia. That's uh, interesting because what you were saying about how they became prostitutes, it's very, and I'm very similar to what I'm researching for the episode that, yeah, on prostitution in, in cool. London. Cool. Yeah, I really, and I, I really go into it later. And if you even want to like chime in with just like without giving away your episode, chime in a little bit with some of the differences. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah. Especially because we're, we're right around the same time. We're researching right around the same time. Yeah. Mine, the, the, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And mm-hmm. as research, I watched the whole first season of Harlots. <laughs> Which we both adore. I know. She got me. I I still have one more episode left. All right. Go, go, go. Okay. So one of the main differences in the American West versus the American East is that you could find women in saloons. You could not find a woman in a saloon east of the Missouri River. So that alone was very shocking, which is something that we don't think about often. Marion S. Goldman, in his book, Gold Diggers and Silver Miners, Prostitution and Social Life on the Comstock Load, captures this fascination with the Wild West and women perfectly. The idealized frontier prostitute was among the few whole women of the late 19th century, possessing both the stereotypical good women's kindness and warmth and the bad woman's sensuality and vigor. She epitomized feminine strivings for adventure and autonomy at a time when most women were constricted by economic discrimination and custom. And I think that is why a lot of people are, you know, absolutely interested and they fantasize about these women is because it is one of the few examples we have of like the whole idea of a woman and back in the day, because, you know, most women, they were very given very two dimensional, you know, ideas of them, even in books and in literature. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, there there are two dimensions, but I feel like there's also sometimes um, in these scenarios, there's like it's like the Madonna horror trope. There's no there's no middle ground between it. Sometimes it's nope. like you're either chaste or you're a whore. 
and there's no room for gray area, which yeah. leaves a lot of us out in the cold. Yep. <laughs> and I said, although I do have problems with certain word choices in this quote, I do resonate with the message. And in this episode, I will be using the word sex worker, except in specific quotes where the author uses the word prostitute. The phrase sex worker was coined by Carol Lee, a sex workers right activist in 1978. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. She, I she's, use another, she's a fascinating person. Oh, I'll have to look her up. Yeah, I guess I use the word sex worker as well. Mm-hmm. So we're going to kind of set the scene for the time. Ooh. So American expansion began with the first English colonial settlement settlements in the earliest 17th century and ended with the addition of the last remaining Western territories in 1912, fueled by Thomas Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase, Manifest Destiny, White Privilege, and all that racist crap. And I have a really big problem with a lot of these things that I just mentioned. And I want to mention that when I was typing Manifest Destiny, my computer went on the fritz. Is that a sign? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Your computer was like, no, I won't even write those words down. (laughs) Right. And then with westward expansion came pioneer mining camps, boomtowns, and whistle stops, which flooded the frontier with young men in search of work and to elevate their social and economic means. Their work choices included logging, surveying, mining, farming, or ranching. So all, you know, very hard labor jobs. Oh my gosh. When we, real quick, Mm -hmm. quick anecdote. When Matt and I went to Canada, uh, like two years ago, we went up to, um, like an old mining camp, uh, like on, on the river on this huge river. And it was insane. Like I'd never been in one of those, but like, you know, they have like a museum devoted to it. And it's just, it was so harsh, so hard, especially it was mostly, you know, immigrants. It was just that, Oh gosh, it was so terrible conditions. Being actually a Finnish person, a lot of Finns migrated to the upper peninsula of Michigan and Mm -hmm. They were miners and treated horribly. And those are a lot of my relatives were miners up in the Copper Peninsula. And oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've listened to stories from my papa, who's my grandpa, and my mummy, and just reading about it. Yeah. It's just fins were treated horribly for iron. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Those, those work, like work camps were just insane. Yep. And uh, the period that we know as the Old West lasted from the 1850s to the 1910s. It has been romanticized heavily since then. As David Murdoch said, no other nation has taken a time and a place from its past and produced a construct of the imagination equal to the America's uh, creation of the West. Hmm. And I really think that just has a lot to say with who we are as people. Even other cultures have taken it on too, right? Like spaghetti westerns, isn't that like like a you know? It's that's it's huge. And, and ja- Japan is really into yeah. Like you know, like what is it? Cowboy Bebop in their anime, and yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it was actually just a really violent time. Yeah, I would not want to live in that time. A very I, unhygienic time too. <laughs> oh my gosh, I would be like drink. I would be downing whiskey at a bar. <laughs> And uh, with the young uh, amount of young men entering the Western territories, there, of course, came a need for women. For example, when they struck gold in Colorado's Cripple Creek in October of 1890, the population of the town boomed from just 500 to more than 10,000 in the space of three years. And that might not seem like a lot by today's standards, but just remember like what the population was like in those days. The uh, ratio of men to women in the West around this time is astounding. In Intimate Frontiers... 
Albert Alutado has tables breaking down the ratios year to year. In 1850, of course, only regarding the white male population, it was 12.2 men for every woman. Ugh. There is statistics saying that it was as high as that in 1850, California was 90% men. Ugh. That seems like a really high exaggeration, but it was really hard to really pin down exact numbers. The ratio evens itself out about 10 years later, but I can only imagine how the difference in the amount of men to women was even larger in the years before 1850. Yeah, well, it was a lot of, I'm sure it was a lot of people um, coming from other, like, immigrating, and the men would probably come first to get jobs and then send for women. But is the, do you have anything about the ratio of, like, were the women single or married, or was it? I'll get into it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, the statistic also does not count for the Latinx population, Chinese and the existing native populations. So the, uh, you know, ratio of men to women could have been even higher. Uh, Men in the area could either compete for the few quote unquote eligible women Mm. to marry, send for a woman, you know, from the East Coast or their hometown, like a mail order bride or go seek out a sex worker. Every small town or camp in the West had at least a sex worker or two and a gambling tent. And from these humble beginnings often sprang a roaring red light district. Whenever a new settlement or mining camp began, the first building or tent erected was a gambling hall. Erected. These were all <laughs> I know, right? Uh, These were always the most decorated buildings in the town with a bar and stage, live entertainment, and hotel rooms. With the gambling hall came saloon girls and sex workers. Towns actually measured their wealth and prosperity by the amount of gambling halls and professional gamblers they had in town. And then the new class of professional sex workers that was in part, you know, came from these course of events actually helped to create a demand for brothels. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. Parlor houses brothels, and sex working in general thrived in the West and often were able to operate openly without the stigma that they experienced in the East Coast. Visitors could even find their local disorderly houses by opening their statewide directories and looking for key phrases like genteel, strangers cordially welcomed, or 20 young ladies engaged nightly to entertain guests. Oh my gosh, they had those in London, in the Victorian era too. They had books that they would publish to tell you like how to approach them and, and that sort of stuff. I find and I think, I think wild. It's, it's so, I think it's, it's hilarious. I love it. Yeah. And brothels in the West attracted women from all around the world looking for good money and quick money and were able to overlook the harsh and dangerous working conditions. Mm. So reasons for entering the sex trade. I'm just going to say right now, I really omitted a lot of graphic details, but this is a seriously bummer section. Women in the Civil War and post-Civil War era had very limited defined options for earning a wage. So just tell me if you don't understand like this, this, it's not, it's, it's a little bit of math. Okay. <laughs> okay. About half the women in America worked for a wage before they got married. So okay. obviously there was women of wealth and of means or whatever, but half the women in America worked for a wage before they got married, which I was actually surprised at that amount. But yeah. Two thirds of those quit working after ma- they got married. That okay. meant that one sixth of the women in the U.S., Okay. So, you know, it was like one third of the women. Who, yeah. Okay. Good. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, depended on the wages that they could bring in under very limited opportunity for employment. So they depended on these wages. One sixth of the women in the U.S. And when you think about that amount. It's a lot. Yeah. They were, so they were fully supporting themselves. 
They were, or yeah. their children or yes. And so yeah. even jobs that we would assume that women would be able to get like low status clerical jobs were all given to men. The Western frontier was full of opportunities for men, not really right. women. And so low status jobs in domestic service, including cleaning houses, laundering clothes, preparing meals and caring for children were the most common options for employment. And that was according to women's work and sex work in the 19th century America by Anya Jabor. And on, and of course, Spain, one, we also, so many, right. And honestly, like a lot of us, I think I like also romanticize it because reading like, you know, little house in the prairie and little house in the big woods, you know, you think that, Oh, everyone can be a teacher if they really want. Well, you know, only so a lot of people were illiterate during this time as well. Yeah. If you were born into the right family. Yeah. yeah. And so 20% of the population at this time is estimated to be illiterate. Which wow. when you think about it, that's actually kind of a lot, like in the like mid to late 18th century. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that there was, I'm sure you'll get into this, but that those low paying jobs were probably they needed to like supplement their income with uh-huh. something else. Yes, they sure <laughs> did. And domestic servants also had to live with their employers. So nannies and all those those domestic servant jobs that I just said before, they had to live with their employer, which of course can be super it sounds miserable to me. So many turned to factory yeah. work or other needle trades. Um, None of these offered permanent stability, and many women became unemployed as the economy took downturns. Jabor quotes a study done in 1859 of 2,000 prostitutes that were confined in New York's Blackwell's Island Prison. And this study revealed that half the women, you know, of the 2,000 women, had worked as domestic servants before entering the sex trade. And another quarter had worked as seamstresses, and abused and abandoned wives made up the remaining one-fourth. So it's just like, I mean, it's just an extremely bleak picture. And like I said, life for an independent woman was bleak. Another woman, another reason why a woman entered the sex trade was if she was labeled a marked woman. And we think marked woman, okay, she had an affair, she had this, she had that, but I'm going to tell you about another reason that everything is terrible. (laughs) So, um, there, this, there's a story about a woman named Libby Thompson who actually became a very famous sex worker and madam named Squirrel Tooth Alice because she had a gallery. <gasps> oh my God, that's the best name ever. Right? Uh, when she was a young girl, her family lost its fortune in the Civil War while living in Texas. In 1864, Comanche Native Americans raided their farm and took her captive, holding her for ransom. After her release, she was seen as a marked woman because the Native Americans could have raped her. There's no evidence that they did. I'm not even suggesting that they did. They were holding her for money. but They were just assuming. Yes, and she was ostracized from society when she was only 13. So. Oh. You know, what else could she do? And then many women lured out to the West as part of the sex trade. One instance was the Gem Theater run by Al Swearigan. I'm probably completely butchering that, which advertised for, he advertised for stage performers with the promise of a high wage out in the West, you know, which was this golden West. Women would arrive penniless from the East Coast and find that their duties were different, aka he was, yeah. They would literally be enslaved to him, engaging in sex work to order in order to earn their fare to go home. Yeah, they like spent all their money going out because the West was seen as like this promised land, right? So they'd like mm-hmm. spend all their money being like, oh, we can, you know, earn our own wage. And then, yeah, you're, ugh. Yeah. And then this is the biggest bummer. I'm just going to, 
I'm briefly giving a little synopsis of this topic. There is books and books about this and articles, and I highly suggest people go read about it because it's something I didn't even know about. Um, during the gold rush in California, Chinese Tonka females and Tonka f- is an ethnic group of Chinese people who lived on boats. They were sold to work as sex workers to the Chinese male population in the United States. Chinese merchants transported thousands of women, young girls, even babies to be sold in the red light district in San Francisco. Girls were sold by their families because they were seen as expendable because they could not support the family nor carry on the family name. Girls could be bought for about 40 bucks, which is a $1,100. Pardon me, $1,104 in 2003 in Guangzhou, China, and sold for about $400, which is about $11,040 in 2013 in the U.S. Oh, I've, I've been to Guangzhou. Really? Yeah, that oh, was where yeah. we went. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. where we went. I'm slightly different, I'm sure, yeah. now than it was. <laughs> but then, you know, many of these slaves were forced into opium addiction in order to sedate them and were sex workers their whole life. In most cases, sex slaves. Sorry, uh, real quick. Was, was this because they were really being into like races, not mixing? So were these women being sold just to Chinese men and not white men? Or honestly, that is a subject that I didn't touch into. But I so one thing that I do talk about a little bit later is Chinese immigrants were seen as the lowest status in this country, and uh, Americans in general thought that the Chinese were taking our jobs. They were taking, they were adding to the moral indecency of this country. So I'm assuming that it's because, yes, that. They didn't want to, yeah. Yeah, not pretty much, yeah, just horrible, bigoted. Yep. White white views added to this. Yeah. A whole criminal empire actually in San Francisco stemmed from this trade. Oh, wow. These women were sold from cages in San Francisco. <sighs> yeah. Oh, my God. And it was estimated that by 1860... of the Chinese women in San Francisco were prostitutes. I could not find, and I say prostitutes because I feel like sex worker almost says that you have a choice. Right. I don't, I I would call these, and I don't know how many of these women were sex slaves. They, I wasn't able to find that, but you know, assuming I'm assuming that most of these Chinese women weren't coming over willingly. Yeah. No. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of them were forced into it. And of course, again, I couldn't, I really tried to look hard. I couldn't find a lot of information about this, but Native American women who were not free during emancipation were sometimes sold to American soldiers as sex slaves. And there is accounts of this going up to 1880. (sighs) So when we think about that, that is like, we think, oh, all this stuff, we're separated by centuries. Like, no, it's not centuries. It's like within, I would say, recent history yeah it's not not that long ago for that practice and there was an account of a native woman literally dying because of the amount of damage that was done to her pelvic area yes and so just damn it okay just stressing and just stressing that that this was done by american soldiers yeah and i'm sure that was a probably more common thing Mm-hmm. I feel like especially with women of other cultures and especially like the native native people back then, they considered them. And I don't like using this word, but I'm using the word because this is what was used back then. They considered them savages and which is like, a, a ter- I, again, I don't like using that word. It's a terrible word, but that was what they were considered. They were considered to be subhuman 
And I'm sure they were treated like they were subhuman. And we still think that America's the greatest country in the world. Yeah. <sighs> okay. As I'm a moving th- to Norway. <laughs> right? Sweden, here we come. Wait, what about Finland? Don't you have family there? Oh, okay. Well, we're moving to Norway. We'll do this podcast from Norway. <laughs> If we can get out. Finland, I love you. Okay. As a sex worker, a woman could earn as much in one hour as a seamstress could earn in a day. Oh, wow. Right? So we just put that into perspective. Abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison quoted a prostitute's response when a missionary was trying to convert her from being a sex worker. I know you mean well by coming here but I don't know how much good it will do. Instead of coming here, you had better go around to some of these factories and shops that grind a poor girl down to $2 a week and then get them to pay better wages. It's no use. A girl can't live on what she gets. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I feel like, obviously, like, it's not the same, but I was thinking about this when I was doing my research. Like, I feel like it's like the same as like serving. Like, <laughs> why you're in the restaurant industry for so long. Obviously, I'm not comparing serving to sex work, but you're selling you know, some people, part of yourself when you do Yeah. That. People are always like, get out of the restaurant industry. And you're like, but I make so much money. It's quick, easy. And you, yeah. you, have, you do have to have a skill for it. Yes. Yeah. You're, it's destroying my soul slowly, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead inside. <laughs> Oh, I can relate all too well. Okay, a woman in a a woman in the smaller mining town or a less affluent area would make about, on average, ten dollars a night. Whereas in a more populated and wealthy area like San Francisco or even Seattle, the average was around fifty dollars. So ten dollars is what, like a couple hundred? If a forty was a thousand, I would say maybe like like two hundred or something. So forty was yeah. So yeah, yeah. So one fourth. So two fifty. It would be like two fifty. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, definitely. wow. These, these, these women, there's a reason why that they were, yeah, they were doing this work. Yeah. And I, yeah. if I was during that time, I honestly would probably be doing the same thing. Yeah. That's uh, like a lot of, a lot of money. And then it said, um, I said, it can also not be ignored that in California, the native female population often had to become sex workers because of the dire poverty and the whole hell of problems that white settlers imposed on their populations in land. Reading about how white settlers raped native women and traded necessities like food for sexual favors, knowing that a woman could not turn down food is enough to make your head boil. Albert El Hutado says white men kidnapped and raped native women with little fear of retribution from authorities. But this is a whole episode in itself. I just really wanted to acknowledge it. Just like the Tonka women, you know, that that's something I'm going to personally do more uh, to educate myself on. And we may even be releasing an episode more explicitly about it. Yeah, that could be like a whole podcast just on it by itself. Honestly. So now I'm going to go into the social identity of women and sex workers in the 1800s. Okay, so sex working thrived in the West away from the puritanical East Coast. They were tolerated by women of good moral, quote unquote, social, good moral and social standing as a necessary evil. So get this. They saw sex working as a necessary evil. And this is why Victorian teachings had long taught decent women that the sexual act was solely for the purpose of bearing children. Women were taught that they shouldn't respond in any way and that her man should be indulged from time to time, but best to be avoided whenever possible. Many people at the time saw sex working as a necessary evil. It kept the good women pure from male's evil intentions and put them with the lewd fallen women. Many argued that the industry was a guard of virtue and kept men from rape. 
In Prostitution Exposed, it is argued that without commercial sex, the bridegroom would seldom flock to his bosom of virgin, for the blight of illicit intercourse would disfigure the holy shrine of wedlock. This, of course, reinforced the ideas that rape is the result of male sexual repression and that sex workers are slave to that passion and are a necessary sacrifice to the general population. And honestly, I'm quoting prostitution exposed sarcastically. I do not agree yes. with that book. I just got yeah. that quote just to show what people oh, thought. I'm, I'm so mad. I, I feel right? like... But yeah, though that I got into that a little bit too because it was it wasn't about the women. It was all about the men. It was all about protecting them. You know, anatomy at the time was focused on the men's anatomy. Still to this day, our BMI is based index is based on a white male's body. There was a thought, and I'm just gonna like a little preview from what I was working on, just because I think this is the most ridiculous thing ever. There was a thought in the and you were talking about Victorian. So the Victorian doctors thought that one ounce of semen was equal to 40 ounces of blood, which is about 20% of your body. So they oh thought that, that if a man like ejaculated, then he was losing, it was equivalent to losing 20% of your, not body weight, of your blood fulfillment, how much blood you have in your body. He was losing 20% of all his blood with ejaculation. So they were worried that like, you know, he, he had, he had to be so careful because he was going to expend all his energy which is ridiculous. It's the stupidest thing I mean, ever. Semen's not that precious. It's not that precious. Oh my God. And like you think about all the like. And I, I'm saying that as a woman who's very thankful that semen created my three children. <laughs> Semen's not that precious. Oh my God. It's not. Speaking of which, um, I have this hand sanitizer right now. Yeah. But every time we put it on our hands, we're like, I'm like, I feel like I'm rubbing semen all over my hands. That means it's, so it's very lubricating. Oh God. No, it's sticky. Oh. It's smelly. It smells like That's tequila. <laughs> I'm covering my face right now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Hi mom. I love that. Hi. <laughs> okay. Well, um, although sex working or prostitution was illegal under state and federal law, many officials did little other than confining their places of business to red light districts. Maybe that's the beginning of zoning? I don't know. Sex workers, madams, dance hall, and saloon girls outnumbered decent women. That's quote unquote. Whenever I use the word decent in this podcast this podcast episode, it's surrounded by quotation marks. I think like for all of time, whenever I use the word decent, it will be surrounded by quotation marks mm-hmm. and then a big eye rolling. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so they uh these sex workers pretty much outnumbered decent women in some frontiers towns twenty-five to one. I hate the term decent women because it goes back no. to like the whole, you know, social can construct. Say, can we say prudish women? I don't know what I should say yeah. right now. I don't know. Prudish, I guess maybe like chaste. But even then, chaste is like seen as like a... It's the whole... Co- I, I think like... Well, what we virginity would as, come up with a word for that. You and I will. Come up with a word for it. Yeah, virginity is like a social construct. Is just the stupidest thing it's ever. It's super healthy for me to be reading memoirs of a geisha at like 12 years old. Like, oh yeah. Wow. When I was binge watching, I was drinking whiskey and binge watching um, Harlots till 4 a.m. the other night. And then I went on a Google search and started reading a scientific article about the hymen and the myth of the hymen. <laughs> like oh don't even get me started on T.I. and his daughters. Ugh. I I don't know. Do you, 
What's he? He took. He takes his daughters to go get tested to make sure their hymen is still intact. I, in two thousand and twenty. I, I mean, last I saw that was reported was in two thousand eighteen. Oh my god, that's like so barbaric. And I, T. I know. I, there's, there's also there's also women who whose hymens aren't intact, and it's not because they've had any penetration. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very outdated, and also like that's so incredibly it. intrusive to your daughters. I can't even begin. Okay. I, Oh my God. Okay. Yep. And then I said many of the vice districts of the larger cities were zoned and located near the racial divides of the metro areas, places that we know as Chinatown, whatever we would call like Mexican town. These can be very offensive. I'm just saying what they were called at the time. These definitely reinforced and complicated white ideas about race sexuality, and sex working, of course. The relationship that sex workers, madams, brothels, parlor houses, etc. had with the law, local laws, was very interesting. Sex working pretty much funded a huge portion of the economy. Bribing officials ensure that they would support these places of business or at least ignore them. Many madams uh, had to buy, they, it was required for them to buy licenses. So even though it was illegal, they had to buy licenses, and I'll get into that. Many madams had close relationships with the high-ranking officials in their area. In spite of the acknowledgement and acceptance of sex working in many cities and boomtowns, it was illegal in almost all cities in the Western frontier. These city councils proposed taxations and licensing to punish the brothel and parlor houses, knowing that they could depend on a steady stream of money because houses would not close, nor would the amount of them decrease. And the madams would be arrested at regular intervals and fined for keeping a body house and for the amount of women she employed. Vagrancy was a term generally used in police reports to describe prostitution at the time, so not a serious offense. Cities depended on this stream of money for their own civic purposes. We have to acknowledge the hypocrisy of these charges under federal and state laws and the collection of fines for the women who violated them. It was legal extortion. So they made these things illegal, knowing that they would continue. So, yeah, I said we just have to acknowledge this hypocrisy because I thought it was just, I feel like we could find examples of it today. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is even maybe a perfect example for sex working today. But of course, we'll get into that more. But I just can't believe that these lawmakers outlawed something, knowing that it wasn't horrible, that it was going to continue, that they were going to allow it to continue just so that they can tax it. And I really wanted to look into what was founded from that money. What was built from that money? Because I will get into the amount of money that these brothels made and so just taxing them alone probably a lot of our country was built on that on sex yes exactly. <laughs> well so i did you i don't know if you'll talk about this but i'm i'm assuming that a lot of those lawmakers who were saying that it's illegal were probably also going oh yeah to the brothels yeah they, they were they were besties with the madams oh yeah mm-hmm. and then listen to this if a sex worker was charged with sex working. She was allowed to leave to engage in sex work to help pay for her crime. What? To help pay for the legal fine for her crime. What? So like she'd be in jail and they'd be like, all right, you can go leave for 15 minutes and then come back. Yeah. So they would, they would put literally down if they could, they they would put down a deposit and then they would go and sex work until that they they could pay for the rest of their fine. So they were just trying to get money out of literally. They were like, it was going to happen. Oh my God. Okay. (laughs) That's yep. And then also 
madams were expected to pay a much higher rent than all the other people around. And the the money spent on military men, on sex workers, was also a huge help to fuel the economy in the West because military men, their their food and board was paid for. Okay. So that, yeah, they had had all this extra money that, you know, think about if you didn't have to pay for necessities. Oh my God. Right. I would be a millionaire. (laughs) And then listen to this just recorded amount. So a recorded example is that in 1853 in New Orleans, it's not the wild West, but it's an example of a larger industrial urban area at the time that was really popular with brothels was It was recorded to be a $6.3 million business, which is 196, it's almost 197 million today. It made more money that year than shipping and the brewing industry combined. Oh my God. So it made more money than importation, exportation, and brewing. Wow. Okay. Sex work did in New Orleans. That was just in New Orleans? Just in New Orleans. Oh my God. Exactly. I'm not talking Louisiana. New Orleans. I want to go to New Orleans. Right? Me too. And army officers actually encouraged the presence of sex workers to keep morale high among enlisted men. This, of course, changed in the 1900s, but in the 1800s. But then uh, in 1863, the U.S. military commander in Nashville actually legalized sex working to help curb the amount of venereal disease among Union soldiers. Surprise, surprise. Health checks curb the rate of the disease from 40% to 4%. Oh, wow. Let's just keep that in mind while, you know, we talk about this later. <laughs> what, and then, What is health checks like? Health checks, so, you know, like the, the sex workers would have to get a health check every week. Okay. You know, just to check for venereal diseases. But I'm, I'm hoping that with those health checks came, hey, this is how to have safe sex and how to have this and that. But obviously it wasn't as, they, they had some, they had more than we, I did. expected. They had more than I expected at that time. I thought that there was just kind of like a free for all and women were thrown to the wind, which they were, but there was actually, believe it or not, there was condoms were available during that time. They were just I, not easy to get a hold of. I noticed that like when I was watching Harlots and she was like washing out a condom, which I'm like, mm-hmm. that is. Don't do that. Don't reuse it. Um, but yeah, I was surprised that like that and that show was what, like the 17, like late 1700s, I think 1750s mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. But yeah. That they had condoms back then. Like I, was, that was, I think that was mostly to uh, prevent pregnancy and uh, listeners, Emily and I are going to be going into contraceptives later in our podcast. It's something that we are also very interested in specifically yeah. condoms. We really want to trace back the history of condoms. Yeah. Oh, that does sound really interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. And then fun fact, this is something I found so hilarious. I'm so sorry that I laughed so hard at this, but <laughs> the word hooker actually comes from the sex workers who took up residence on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington to serve General Joseph Hooker's army back oh my in the God. day. <laughs> so they got real creative. Oh my God. That's funny. I didn't know that. Right. And I said the relationship of sex working and the U.S. military again is an incredibly interesting and a whole other episode on its own. I am just brushing past this, giving us a foundation. For all of these reasons, mostly because of the one that I was talking about with the money and the legal extortion, this is how sex workers found themselves pretty much existing outside the law. This also, like, sure, it could have been great for monetary reasons or for, you know, uh, professional reasons, but it also translated to the abuse that a sex worker could experience. And 
It's no wonder that some women became bold and brash beyond belief. Molly Johnson of Deadwood, South Dakota, rented a carriage by the hour and went up and down the streets insulting proper and decent women in the camp, as well as the women that refused to work for her. <laughs> was she a madam? Yeah, she was amazing. She oh was my a God. great woman. She rented a carriage by the hour and just hurled insults as it drove her up and down. And I, I'm assuming she probably had like a flask of gin. Can we do an episode on her? Yes, we can. It gets like incredibly interesting because I didn't know that sex working in the U.S. was so complicated. There's actually a hierarchy of sex workers in the U.S. And it's more nuanced than I expected. White women, African-American women, Native American women, Chinese women, European women, and Hispanic women were all known to be sex workers. And for women without citizenship status, sex working was a sure way to make a wage after immigrating here. Prices for services rendered were often dependent on a woman's race. Which, just exactly what you were saying, which is just absolutely lovely. Ugh, God damn it. All right. And, yep. Yep. As in women of the West, which I was by, which is by Merrick, which I quoted in my intro, Native American and redheaded women were often priced higher because of a belief that they were more amorous and exotic. Oh my gosh. You would have been priced really high because you have, uh, I have fake red hair. Yes. Well, they had hair dye back then. <laughs> I'm sure there's like a lot of women that were dyeing their hair red to be you. You would be you'd be surprised. Actually, I'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. But French women were actually at the top of the list and could charge the most for their services. Chinese women were seen as the lowest of all sex workers, and we've already talked about that horrible bummer of a deal. And the amount of international women declined later in the uh, late 1800s after the Page Act in 1875 forbid the importation of women for prostitution. I'm sure that that stopped it completely. No, it slowed it down, but it didn't stop it. They were probably like bringing women over and being like, oh yeah, she's going to be working as a servant. And then she was totally. Yeah. I I don't like, it would be really easy to get around that. I agree. Ages of sex workers varied wildly from mid-teens to women in their 40s and 50s. Obviously, men did pay more for women of youth, but experience was valued too. It is necessary to talk about how all the, the, it's just, sorry, it just bums me out, but all about the different aspects of a life for a sex worker at this time. The costs for daily life were expensive. Even I ignorantly was like wondering, how could a sex worker always be in near constant poverty? If she has a good client base, you know, she, you, you see her wearing these beautiful dresses, like how could she always pennies away from not having her next meal? As Marianne S. Goldman says, no working prostitute could forget the obvious cost of her rent, police bribes, clothes, doctor bills, contraception, contraceptives, and abortions. Yeah, and of course, like, those contraceptives and abortions were put on women to pay. Not, I feel like men should have had to pay for a contraceptive. Oh, oh, oh! And let's just let's just say here when say a, a male and uh, a male and a sex worker was caught in the act. Guess who got arrested? Oh, was it the man? <laughs> oh, you know he was held accountable. <laughs> yeah, he was held accountable. He was flogged. <laughs> right? And the different establishments that a sex worker could find work at varied wildly. A 1910 Kansas Vice report compared. A few brothels were equipped with expensive furniture and furnishings, including the finest of upholstered chairs, well-done paintings, and costly rugs, while others were hovels of repulsive squalor. 
Before we go into the different establishment sex workers could work in, we must first talk about the famed Madams of the West. Repulsive squalor is what I felt like my Capitol Hill <laughs> apartment. <laughs> so you could describe it. It, was just, it wasn't you. It was your kitty. Uh, yeah, it was my kitty and the fact that like... It was your kitty, not was- your pussy. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was... She was there too. <laughs> Hi, mom. <laughs> uh, okay, before we go, uh, I already did that. Uh, most madams were sex workers who, quote unquote, paid their dues and rode in, rose in station. Madams also occasionally saw clients that they hand selected, and they could be charged up to a thousand dollars a night for uh, experience with an experienced madam. In Lost Sisterhood, Prostitution in the Ameri- in America, Ruth Rosin painted an intoxicating picture of the proficient madam. A madam was involved in every aspect of her business. Running a house with so many workers required much skill. A parlor house or a brothel required the purchase of regular food and food preparation. A madam had to monitor the cleanliness of the brothel, including the sheets, which had to be changed several times in an evening, and a stock of wines and liquors for clientele. She was the boss of the brothel, and so a madam fired and hired servants, maids, and sex workers. New faces in the brothel were desired by patrons, and so madams had to find new women to recruit. Sometimes that meant taking a less than desired woman, but one with youth and good looks. The quote-unquote new sex worker received training, cosmetics, and sometimes clothes from the madam. And to be clear, madams were found from the lowliest crib houses to parlor houses and all ruled with an iron grip. Many women found themselves indebted to their madam. Many women lacked the credit to buy items for her trade, and she was forced to buy them through her madam. Madams weren't the best, but they were better than pimps. <laughs> they were, yeah, they did provide more protection than just, like, being out on the streets and having to fend for yourselves, yep. right? Like, Right, yep, and I, de- I go actually definitely go into that, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some, like, I, I think that, like, being in brothels was probably, you know, if a man got too, like, rapey or something, then they could, the women yeah. were more protected. Yeah. Definitely. I'll let yep. you. And then um, another quick note, and I found this so incredibly interesting. Sex work in that day meant vaginal and sometimes anal sex. Oral sex was considered by Americans as too foreign at the time. And sex workers, if they found out that another sex worker was engaging in any oral sex, they would shun them. Oral sex was seen as like crazy at the time. So when I, in this next episode, am telling you about all these different establishments that sex workers worked in and all these different statistics, remember when I am saying that they engaged in sex, it is anal and mostly vaginal. It is not oral sex. Oh my gosh, they didn't engage in it at all? No, and that would have like saved, that would have helped you, so you many. Can still, you can still contract syphilis orally, but I'm more you so can, talking. but you can't get pregnant and yeah. Boom, exactly, right? That's yeah. wrong? All right, yeah. Mic right. drop. If I were <laughs> mad, it might be like, this is an oral sex only establishment. <laughs> and before we go for this episode, I just really quickly wanted to say another little tidbit that I learned about the Wild West that I thought was incredibly interesting. It goes with talking about sexuality in the West, but it's not necessarily about sex work. Homosexuality was a lot more common in the Wild West than we know because men were usually only surrounded by men. Mm-hmm. You know, men had to complete certain roles that 
they didn't have women around to necessarily do, and they didn't have problems with that. There was also a lot more gender fluidity in the West than we knew, and also a lot more, and we don't use the word cross-dressing anymore, but there was a lot of women who dressed up as frontiersmen and vice versa. And it is something that's really worth to look being looked into because I did not know this. I did not, because you always see cowboys in the Wild West as being like these really butch masculine figures, but the fact that homosexuality was a lot more prevalent I actually, I actually ran into that in my research too. And I do think that we should do an episode on maybe it would probably be a two part episode. We could look into different countries, but like homosexuality in like the 1800s and like male brothels, I think it would be really interesting Mm -hmm. because male sex workers. Yeah. It's really, yeah. I think we should, we definitely need to do like, we could collaborate, but I didn't know that about the gender fluidity. That is Mm -hmm. that. That's interesting. And like in such a, it was like the West was so full of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. that, you know, you'd think that that would be, I don't know. I just like, I just am like oh, thinking about like the cutest, like broke back mountain moment, but in the wild West. And I'm just like, Oh, oh I know. Oh. <laughs> All right. I'm sure Heath Ledger. We love you. Oh, we love you. I'm sure that they, I'm sure that that like existed you just don't you don't hear about like that okay to go back to harlots like in the first (laughs) season there was like the um the guy who like is a spy the spy guy the lady comes in and his lover is like dying on his deathbed and she's like do you fear death because you're sinners and he just looks at her he's like no love isn't a sin and i'm like yeah exactly Mm -hmm. again (laughs) everyone needs to watch harlots It's really good. Yeah. It's one of those shows. It's like, I have to, it's some, it gets really dark sometimes and I could tell it's going in a direction I don't want it to. So I haven't finished the last episode of season one. Cause I, I think that someone's about to die and I don't want them to. Even and too, I, I definitely was like kicking things while, oh, yeah. you know, kicking the air and such. okay that's that's it for this week and join us for oh wait do we want to do our happy harlot real quick no let's do our happy harlot yeah so emily decided to name our little happy moments that we want to talk about at the end of every episode because we do want this episode these you know podcast episodes to of course be about us in some aspect but we really want it to be about what we're talking about so we're gonna really try to confine those aspects of our personality to the beginning and end of our episodes so that you can skip them if you want to. And sometimes <laughs> in the middle, yeah. If they're in the middle, you're screwed. <laughs> yeah, we can't quiet Emily. She, We've tried. That bitch won't shut up. <laughs> All right, you want to go first? What's your happy sure. harlot? So I experienced grilled oysters with the most insane, like, mignonette type of sauce. I'm probably saying that completely wrong. So... My friend Lucy makes this most insane sauce with like fish sauce and like vinegar, like more cilantro and onion and like a really hot pepper and grilled the oysters whole. Her husband was doing his best job at shucking them. Don't worry. we 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 were all outside. We were doing our best to social distance. They were wearing masks and not bras. (laughs) Hashtag wear a mask, not a bra. (laughs) But just to experience a grilled oyster that was fresh with Lucy's amazing sauce, I flipped out and I had like 10 or 15 of them and they blew my mind. I think Lucy and I like bonded. Our friendship is cemented on our love of oysters. (laughs) And for me, I try so hard to love them, but I'm, I'm a muscle girl all the way. I remember like Lucy. Hi, Lucy. We went, I think... 
it was either like before she got pregnant or after she had the kid, maybe before, I don't remember, but I remember we like went to Taylor Shellfish when it was right by our, our apartment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I just remember like every time we would go, we would spend $200 on like rose and oysters. I, Those oh, I love the, Taylor Shellfish. So Lucy took me to the Taylor Shellfish farm and we no. enjoyed o- oysters overlooking their oyster farm. And it was. Yeah. The most beautiful, amazing thing. And then it was the best ceviche I've ever had because the lumps of crab were like like an inch by two inch. Like I couldn't scoop up the lumps of crab. Like I was like literally having to. <laughs> I don't want to live in Colorado anymore. Rocky Mountain oysters are not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> They're not. Okay. okay so my I happy harlot this. is oysters. What's your happy harlot moment? Okay. Um, my happy harlot is that I actually, we had, I have a lot of them. So I, uh, this week, but. Uh, we got four plant babies, so I became a plant mom Woo-hoo! this week. Yeah, I bought one, and it was like a gateway drug into buying four. <laughs> and now Matt, Matt is trying to figure out how to build lattices around our TV on our like TV wall so that we can have vines growing. Here are the names of our plants, please. Um, okay, so they're Buffy and Willow, of course. Vinny and the Jet. <laughs> oh my gosh, you need to tell another one. And- yeah, you can tell who named who. Yeah, yeah. I need. I know. I was like, I need. An, I I need another one. I need like ten more. I think we're we're gonna <laughs> tell Matt he needs to name one called like it needs to be called like cancel spores. Cancel. I need spores. That's what. The, yeah, we got. So we got, got all these like macrame hangings and so we have four now and they're they're like ivies they're really Mm -hmm. pretty so i have we have one ivy that is over we have this really cool invention that is where it holds our cat litter box it's like a cabinet so the cats can go in and out just letting everyone know emily and matt's furniture for their cat is way nicer than the furniture for themselves like their animal furniture is like so much nicer than their furniture (laughs) and we just spent a lot of money on a new mattress and it was for our cats both (laughs) And your dog. Yeah. Well, she's not a lot. She is not supposed to be jumping up and down on it right now, but she won't stop. She's like, keeps leaping over gates and jumping up on the, the mattress, but she has like, she just got her ACL fixed, but yeah, all the animals love it. Anyway. So my happy harlot was my plants, which I'm so happy. They, they light up your house so much. They do. And we're going to, um, we're going to follow the story and see if I can keep them alive. <laughs> Woohoo! I mean, I've, I've kept stuff alive. So, but you kept kids alive. That's, that's uh, a lot. True. And I've kept a gold. I've kept a beta fish alive. Didn't your last one die? Like no, this one's been alive for three years. Which who's who is this? Your first one died really quickly, right? Yeah, that was when we were living. Yeah, yeah, that, but that was like four years ago. Who, what's this one's name? So Zelda named it Boss Baby, and then Poppy, <laughs> and then she named it Searsha from Song of the Sea. So we have Searsha, which Alfred can't say. Searsha. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, cute. But a great name. All right, this is Emily and Karamia with Harlots of History, and we're signing off and gonna chug some of the sparkling rosé before we get on to our next episode. Woo! Okay. Right. All right, wear a mask, not a bra. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Our music is by Lloyd Rogers, and our cover art and our editing is by us. If you enjoyed listening, we would be tickled if you left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can always email us at harlotsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and we will do our best to get back to you with something witty, snarky, or boring. We are also on Instagram and Twitter as Harlots of History. We love you all, even the haters.